Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we do make that our prayer and our declaration and our cry today. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. Father, we pray that that would be something that we um, do more than just sing about, that it would be more than something that we just um, remember once a year, God, but that it would be our life's song, that it would be the commitment that we make each and every day, that no matter what we face, no matter what we encounter, we can declare Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes to save. Uh, So, Father, that is our desire. That is our heart's cry in this moment, and it is our heart's cry for every day that you entrust to us. We ask now, God, that your spirit would be with us, that it would open our hearts and our minds to a greater understanding of who you are and what you've done. We ask that you would let this word once again be living and active, that it would inspire, that it would encourage, that it would lead us into the way of everlasting. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Well, good morning again. Uh, I wanted to also make a comment that if you are a guest, if you are a visitor and you've somehow found us online or somebody invited you to, to tune into this live stream, broadcast, feed, whatever we're calling it, then welcome. Uh, we're glad to have you with us. My name is Jeremiah Smith. I am the pastor here. And uh, we want to make sure that if you're a guest or a visitor, if you ever need anything, in the midst of these crazy times that we're here for you and we'll be happy to to help meet those needs to the best of our ability. Uh, I just wanna reiterate some of the things that I said at the beginning very briefly just because of all the things that I asked you to remember when it comes to Holy Week this week. Uh, With today being Palm Sunday, don't forget that we've made those crosses available that you can put in your yard. We want you to come pick one up, uh, get a cross, leave some flowers, Uh, Take a a short picture or video of you putting that cross in your yard, send it to media at ubcfortworth.org, and then we'll have our Good Friday service on Friday at 6.30. Want to make sure that you have elements for the Lord's Supper in your home by that point in time, and then we're doing a drive-in service on Easter Sunday. You will not get out of your car. This is not bring your lawn chair. This isn't walk down the street. This is like come in your car park in every other spot, but I still think that it's going to be really great for us to gather uh, on this campus and wave to each other, even through cars, and and to worship together in a unique way on Easter Sunday. And so uh, we'll do a 7 o'clock and a 1030 service on Easter Sunday, and and more information and any changes we'll share with you guys as best we can uh, in the next few days leading up to it. Uh, Now that being said, uh, today is Palm Sunday, and we want to to really take some opportunity to celebrate the significance of this story. And if you think about Palm Sunday, it's, it's often referred to in the context of the scriptures as the triumphal entry. And there's a lot of irony in that title. Uh, because when you think about a triumphant entry of a, of a king, you, you tend to think of this, this royalty coming dressed in, in royal attire and marching into a city with an army and a strength and, and a demonstration of power. But what we have depicted for us in the scriptures is actually a a humble carpenter turned rabbi who who enters in with ordinary men riding on a donkey, right? It's this incredible irony. It's what many of us would 
would question in terms of why would that be considered triumphant, and yet that's exactly what it comes to be known for. And, and it becomes one of the most incredible pictures that really draws us into a greater understanding of the wisdom of God. And that's really gonna be what we focus in on today. We're gonna use uh, where we are in the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter three today, to really coincide with this, this message of Palm Sunday to get a better sense of the wisdom of God. Now, before we get to that, uh, I, I wanna talk to you a little bit uh, uh, with an opening illustration about art. And so I, I've got a way to hopefully engage you this morning. Uh, you all know, for those of you that have been with us for any amount of time, a lot of times when I uh, begin a message, I like to poll the audience. I like to get some feedback from you guys and do these short little surveys. And so I'm going to do one for us this morning. So if you are able to answer this question by just typing in the comments and putting it on uh, the little post here, that would be awesome. Uh, but this is an age-old question that a lot of times you hear when you're younger. But I'm curious, what is your favorite color? And if you're watching with your family, you don't have to post for each family member, but maybe ask everybody in your home, hey, what's your favorite color? And then just type them all in as one comment. You know, our favorite colors are blue, pink, yellow, green, whatever they are. But what is your favorite color? And, and I want you to share that with us this morning. And the reason uh, I'm, I'm asking you that is because I don't know if you've noticed this, but it seems like more people are, are being artistic with all this extra time. Uh, I, at least from what I'm seeing on social media, uh, news feeds, and even in my own home, there's been this uptick in creativity and this desire to, to draw, to paint, to create. And, and I feel like there's just kind of this natural inclination towards art when we have this extra time or when we are facing uncertainty and crisis. And so I actually wanted to share with you some of the art that's been created in my home. We have a stack of of papers that are, are filled with all these things that my kids have created. Uh, I brought a couple pictures with me today. This first one that you're seeing, these first three actually come from James. Uh, you can see there that he's, he's done a little milkshake. That's one of his uh, favorite pieces. The second one that he has here is, uh, I think, an ice cream kind of chocolate sundae. And then the third, you'll notice a consistent theme with his, is the banana split option there. And, and so he's done a lot. Now, Annabelle, has had a little bit more variety with some of the ones that she wanted me to share with you today. Uh, her first picture that she provided was a chicken, right, getting in the, the spirit of Easter, and uh, she's actually asking for a real live chicken right now. So that, there's a lot of conversation going on at our home about that, so we'll see how that plays out. Her, her other picture, uh, similar to her brother, kind of came into this theme of food and drink, and she's got a little cup there uh, of, I guess, lemonade or lemon-lime something. And then her last one was this really cool picture of this dinosaur, uh, or dragon, excuse me, not dinosaur, dragon. And so we have pictures like this all over our home. And, and what's interesting is that if you compare James's pictures to Annabelle's pictures, you can see a definite theme with James. He's really got the dessert thought on his mind. And with Annabelle, there's a variety of animals and, and kind of life-giving things. And, and part of the reason I, I share those pictures with you is because when you think about art, color definitely brings it to life. You see the creative color that they use. But, but many times when we look at art, we, we ask ourselves deeper questions than just the craftsmanship and the skill with which they've drawn something or painted something. We, we find ourselves thinking, okay, well, what was the message, right? What, what was the, the meaning behind this? You know, a lot of times we think about this in terms of a more sophisticated environment, like going to a museum or being at an art exhibit, and you stop and you marvel at the skill level, skill level of somebody who's, who's an accomplished artist, but you do ask yourself, but what was the intent, right? What is the, 
the artist trying to communicate? What is the message? And that's what I want us to consider today. See, I, I believe that the reason we have this propensity towards creating and towards artistry is because we're made in the image of God. And God is the ultimate artist, right? And because he loves to create, we love to create. And so today is going to afford us the opportunity to stop and to consider his artistry, his craftsmanship that we see in, in not just creation, not just in history, but even in the present moment. But for us to also stop and consider what is the message, right? What, what is he revealing? What is his intent? And I believe that sort of consideration is going to help us better understand the wisdom of God and see how that wisdom of God leads us into glory. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Ephesians chapter 3, and we're going to continue this conversation. We've been in the book of Ephesians for several weeks now, and just as a brief recap, we've talked about how Paul has started in these first few chapters with an invitation to praise, right? That's what we see in chapter 1, right? Praise be to God, and then it's this elaborate explanation as to why we can give God praise, and the central focus in that first chapter is on Jesus Christ, Right, that Paul is begging his readers to recognize what God has done for them in Christ Jesus. And he concludes it with a prayer that their hearts would be enlightened and open to all that God has done for them in Christ Jesus. Then we spent several weeks looking at chapter 2. that has this, this, this comparison of the then and the now. What, what was and what is. Right? What you were and what you now are. You, you were dead in your transgressions, but God has made you alive. He's raised you up. He's seated you in the heavenly realms. You were aliens, foreigners, strangers, but now you are fellow citizens, fellow citizens with God's people. You are members of his household. We see this image of, of God constructing this church, this new humanity, and that church is on the rise. And so we've seen some, some beautiful things depicted in these first two chapters. And now we're going to get to chapter three that is ultimately going to lead to a climatic moment that we'll look at next week. But we'll see how Paul leads us into that here with these first 13 verses in chapter three. Follow along with me in Ephesians 3, starting in verse one. <clears throat> for this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is the mystery made known to me by revelation as I have already written briefly. In reading this then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to people in other generations as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body and shares together in the promise in Christ Jesus. And I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. And I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory. Okay, so what we have just read 
is one of Paul's ultimate digressions, okay? And what I mean by that is that he starts off in verse 1 with a particular point in mind, but because of a few words that he mentions, he completely digresses into a whole other point, right? It, it, this is Paul. If, you, if we had a chance to just go sit down and have coffee with Paul, I can imagine that the conversation would take you all over the map because all these words just always trigger new thoughts. He, he's the ultimate uh, like chasing rabbits sort of conversationalist, right? He, he follows those bunny trails. You know what I mean by that, right? The person that as soon as they hear something, they start talking about something else. That's, that's Paul. And so we have this ultimate digression that just took place here in the beginning part of, of chapter three. Now, when you look at this digression, the main theme that seems to be pretty obvious is this continued elaboration on the mystery Right? This is something that Paul first introduced in chapter 1, chapter 1, verse 9, and, and he explains the, the definition of that mystery in chapter 1 in verses 9 and 10, <clears throat> right? that this mystery is that God is going to bring all things together under Jesus Christ, right? that, that the ultimate plan was focused on Jesus Christ. But then what we see develop from that plan in chapters 2 and 3 is that the way that, that we can see the fulfillment of that mystery right now is in the creation of this new humanity, right? A Jew and Gentile coming together as the church, right? That, that, that is a, an evidence or a tangible fact of this all things coming together, right? That's the mystery that is being revealed, and Paul is pointing to it, and he's, he's talking very clearly about his role in it that God gave him grace, though he was least of, of all the people, to, to preach this good news, right? To, to make this, this news known. He says, I was called to make it plain. That word means to illuminate something that was previously hidden, right? And that's the whole idea. For generations, no one knew what God was doing, but now he's bringing all people together under Christ, right? That, that's kind of the overtone of this digression. Now, we could work through it verse by verse and find some really great takeaways as it speaks to how God revealed himself to Paul, the importance of grace. We could talk about, uh, again, the, the significance of this new humanity that's being formed together, but we've talked about a lot of those things already. And so what I want to do is look at how within this, progress, this digression, uh, Paul leads us to an incredibly important part of this entire letter. Right? And to me, it's, it's one of the most significant verses that we have, not just in chapter 3, but really the, the letter as a whole, where we get to this moment where as Paul is talking about this mystery, this, this canvas that God is painting, and he points to God's purpose, right? He points to the whole reason behind it, and, and he explains why God is doing all that he is doing. And it comes in verse 10 where Paul says, his intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God would be made known. And that's what I want us to dive into this morning, the manifold wisdom of God. And, and I want to break that apart. I want to first focus in on what do we know about the wisdom of God, and then we'll look at this description of it being a manifold wisdom. Now, when you think about wisdom of God, this is very different than, than the wisdom that you and I can ever experience. We find numerous verses throughout the scriptures about what wisdom we can pray for, what wisdom we can aspire to, 
and we can look for, but, but that is still very different than the wisdom of God. I want to read to you a couple of passages this morning. I, I've got a couple short ones before I'm going to share a longer one. These shorter ones I didn't provide for you on the screen, so you can just listen to these. But, but these are some of the early descriptions of the wisdom of God that we find in some of the scriptures. And again, this isn't exhaustive, just a few. Isaiah 28, 29 says, All this comes from the Lord Almighty, Almighty, whose plan is wonderful, whose wisdom is magnificent. Isaiah 29, 13 through 14 creates a, a contrast between our wisdom and his. He says, These people come near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is based merely on human rules that they have been taught. Therefore, once more, I will astound these people with wonder upon wonder. The wisdom of the wise will perish. The intelligence of the intelligent will vanish. Now keep that one in mind. God has this authority over even our wisdom. Isaiah 40, 28. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary. In his understanding, his wisdom, no one can fathom. Jeremiah 10, 12. But God made the earth by his power. He founded the world by his wisdom and stretched out the heavens by his understanding. Romans eleven thirty three. 33. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom, <clears throat> of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. So part of what we see early on in these passages is that God's wisdom is significant. It, it creates the world. It stretches out the heavens. It is all-powerful. It is magnificent in its essence. It is very uh, different than the wisdom that we have. Now, whenever you think about the wisdom of God in, in a passage of Scripture that elaborates upon it in its most vivid detail, it really leads you to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And so in order for us to understand the wisdom of God, uh, I really want us to look together for a moment in this chapter. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and we're going to read a, a, a pretty significant chunk of, chunk of Scripture, but I'm going to kind of break it up for us in, in sections and kind of elaborate as we go. Uh, let me read this first section for you, starting in verse 18. And as we see Paul elaborate further on the wisdom of God. In chapter 1, verse 18 of 1 Corinthians, he says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. That's that Isaiah verse. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Brothers and sisters, Think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are. Let's stop right there. Right? So the, the main theme that we see so far in this description of the wisdom of God is that first and foremost, it's Jesus Christ. Right? It's, it's Christ 
crucified. It's the cross. For, for those who are perishing, the message of the cross appears foolish. But to those who believe, it, it is the power of God. This is the wonder upon wonder that Isaiah was referring to that is ultimately going to frustrate the wisdom of the world. Right? It was Christ crucified. So we see that Isaiah passage brought to fulfillment. And in there, we find this undeniable declaration that, that God's wisdom is far greater than our own. Right? God's foolishness is greater than the wisdom of humanity. His, his weakness is stronger than human strength. And so we see this comparison that Paul even points to. What, what were you when you were called? Right? You, you weren't wise by human standards. You, you weren't strong. You weren't influential. You weren't of noble birth. But God chooses the lowly things, the despised things, the things that aren't to nullify the things that are. We have this incredible picture of how God uses the lowly things. This is what we see even in the Gospels, right? That, that when we anticipate a Messiah, when we anticipate a Savior, he gives us a baby born in a manger. He gives us a humble carpenter, right? He gives us the things that are often overlooked to reveal his wisdom. Now, why does he do it that way? Why is that the manifestation of God's wisdom? Well, it takes us back to the garden. Before we continue reading, we need to remember the challenge that took place in the garden, right? The, the heart of sin, the heart of rebellion is pride. Right, the temptation that drew us in was this idea that we could be like God. We could determine right and wrong for ourselves. And so we didn't need God. We didn't want God. We wanted to question him. We wanted to question his word. We wanted to question his rules. We wanted to question his wisdom. That was a demonstration of pride. And so when we lean on our own understanding, when we lean on our own pride, our own accomplishments, our own achievements, that is a, a dismissive uh, gesture towards God. And so what God does, he says, okay, I'm going to look at all that you can do. I'm going to look at what you define as wise, what you define as strong, and I'm going to do the opposite. I'm going to choose the lowly. I'm going to choose what you consider to be foolish because that's where you're not going to be able to take credit. Right? And if I do it this way, it's going to all lead back to me. Here's how Paul explains it, picking back up at the end of chapter 1. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Right, so Paul says, no one should be able to boast before him. If you're going to boast, you must boast in the Lord. That's why God chooses the lowly things. And then Paul gives an example of how this has worked out in his own life. And so it is with me, brothers and sisters. When I came to you, I didn't come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. Where does your faith rest? Does it rest on human wisdom or on the power of God? I think about where we are right now as a society, really where we are as a humanity, as, as we face this, this pandemic. If you're like me, I, I find myself reading up on it at, at odd times and at different places. Sometimes I want to avoid the news and then sometimes I can't get enough. And 
and I find myself just reading all these different aspects to what we're facing. You know, what, what's, what's the uh, effectiveness of our strategies? What, what do we have that's helping us combat uh, a troubling, or troubling economy? What, what, are we, what progress are we making in terms of a vaccine? Right? I'll, I'll read all this different content and all this material. And I'll be honest, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I don't think there's anything wrong with any of us wanting to be informed, and I don't think there's anything wrong with us uh, valuing and appreciating the expertise of others. But here's the point. The point is that sometimes we can face a crisis and find ourselves trusting in human wisdom over God's power, right? That, that what we're looking for for hope and comfort is, is a mitigation strategy or or an economist that can help protect our well-being or, or the development of a vaccine. And when it comes down to it fundamentally, let me just ask you, what's more important, the development of a vaccine or a savior who can deliver you from death? Right, that's the point, is that when we enter a crisis like this, our faith, our trust should never rest upon human wisdom, but on the power of God. Where does yours rest? Now, the challenge with this is that a lot of times when we venture into the wisdom of God, because he chooses the lowly things of the world, what that requires of you and me is humility, <laughs> right? What that requires of, of us is, an, I guess, really a moment or an acknowledgement that we're not always going to have the answer. And it's actually going to be in our weaknesses and in our vulnerabilities that we find faith in the power and wisdom of God, not in our strength. So can you get comfortable with that? Can you get comfortable with the not knowing? Can you be comfortable with the fact that his wisdom, his plan is beyond searching, right? It, it's, it's hard to ascertain. Now, this is kind of what leads us into the significance of this description that Paul gives us in Ephesians, Ephesians that this wisdom of God is described as manifold, okay? Now, let's think through this description for a moment. The word manifold means very varied, <laughs> So greatly varied, there's a, there's a lot of variety. It actually can also literally mean multicolored, right? A multicolored wisdom, a, a varied wisdom. What, what do we mean by that? Now here's what's significant about this word. It's the only time it's used in the New Testament. Now that should kind of register with us because if Paul's sitting there trying to think of a way to describe God's wisdom, he has chosen a word that is incredibly rare and, and he's used this, this word that speaks to the, the very nature of God's wisdom. And so when I've studied this before and reflected upon this for, for many, many years, uh, I've really kind of walked away with two to three, really three different uh, implications that I want to share with you this morning. It, it's, it's a hard thing to really grasp and to understand, but, but here are the three things that it, it reminds me of when I study this. First of all, it makes me think of the variation that should exist in the church, right? In this new humanity. When you think about this context of Jew and Gentile being brought together, what we see is, is a variation within this new humanity that, that really represents every tongue, tribe, and nation. That the church is not meant to be just for one culture, one people, one race. It's not meant to be homogenous, but incredibly diverse, right? That it's this this variation that we find in the church. That, that's one takeaway that I feel like this word manifold might imply. The second that I often think of is the complexity to God's wisdom, right? That there are so many nuances and varieties to it, 
right? This is kind of the, what piggybacks with this notion of humility, right? That there are so many things that are beyond our comprehension that are unknowable, that there's a complexity to it. it, it there's so much variation that we're not always going to understand it. It is a manifold wisdom, right? And so we have to get comfortable with those complexities. But, but the third thing that it really takes uh, or really kind of leaves with me, which is the one that I really want to elaborate on for a moment, is the fact that this is a word that is about artistry, right? It, it literally means multicolored. In fact, in other writings that you can look at, um, I, I think it's uh, uh, Euripides that, that describes a multicolored garment or, or Eubulus that describes flowers, right? It's a poetic term that really is meant to speak to colors and colorization. And so you can't help but read it and not think about artistry. In fact, it was probably about nine years ago when I was reading Eugene Peterson's Practice Resurrection that is a, a, a book or a study on the book of Ephesians that really kind of helped drive this idea home that has really stuck with me ever since. And, and it's this idea that God's an artist. And there's this, this multicolored approach to how he, he paints upon this canvas of humanity and human existence. So, so let's think once again about color and colorization and the tools that artists use to, to create multicolored pictures and canvases and artistry, right? Earlier, um, I asked you to share your favorite color. And while I don't have the luxury of being able to read through those comments right now, my, my assumption, and I guess I could be wrong, is that the majority of those comments or the majority of your answers would be colors like blue, red, green, yellow, pink, right? Bright colors, uh, I would imagine that very few responses, very few answers would say black and gray, right? That we have a tendency to really focus on the brighter colors. But when you're an artist, knowing that people are drawn towards brighter colors and that that might even be your favorite, how do you accentuate that brightness? Well, that leads you into an art artistic uh, approach or technique that is known as contrast. Let me define contrast for you. Contrast is simply defined as difference. So basically, an artist is going to take elements like value, size, texture, and color, and so on, so that they can intensify other elements that are, are used. So essentially, what you do is you take one color and you contrast it to another in order to intensify one part of your painting. So uh, my wife's a photographer. And, and I was talking to her about this. I said, hey, help me understand contrast from your point of view. And she said, well, yeah, if you, if you use contrast in a photo, it's going to make your subject or the thing that you're focusing in on a little bit more accentuated. It's going to pop a little bit. And I said, well, show me, show me an example. She said, well, yeah, I can, I can actually take as much contrast out of a photo and then add it back in. So we were in Colorado this past July on, on our sabbatical and we took a lot of pictures of landscape and whatnot, and she found a picture of kind of our, our view, some of the scenery, and she took the contrast out of it, and then she put it back in. And so let me show you this first picture that doesn't have any contrast included in it. All right, so this is, this is our view, and you can see the trees, you can see the skyline, you can see the clouds, but this is her using that editing software and taking out all the contrast. Now, if you go to the actual picture with contrast, look at the change you can see how the colors brightened. You can see how they started to pop. Let me show that to you one more time without contrast. Now watch the skyline in particular, the clouds and whatnot. Now go with contrast. You see new colors that you didn't even know 
emerge. That's what contrast does. And so why am I sharing any of this with you? Well, because when I read about this description of a multicolored wisdom, what it reminds me of is that in the artistry of human existence, as God paints on this canvas, sometimes he has to paint upon darker colors. If we're truly gonna be drawn to the bright colors that we find in life, metaphorically speaking, to the colors of love, of hope, of joy, of peace, the way that those things are intensified and more clearly seen is through the use of contrast where we also have to become aware of pain and suffering and grief and despair. Right? The way that we value love is by also being aware of what it means to hate. The way in which we value hope is by also having a familiarity with what it means to despair. The way in which we cling to the power of healing is by understanding the tragedy of disease. Right? That's the multicolored wisdom that we find in life, that sometimes life is going to bring in these darker colors so that the brighter ones can shine more brightly, right? And so how do we respond then when the dark colors come rushing in to life? Well, I, I think this current situation that we're facing proves to be a great case study in that regard. And we've talked about this before, right? That, that when we sit back and we watch a pandemic literally impact the world, and we see that this virus has the capacity and the potential to, to infect millions and, and cause the potential of hundreds of thousands of lives to be lost, that is a dark color overwhelming the canvas. And so the, the tendency then would be to look at it and question, how could God allow this to happen? Right? Why would he allow it to happen? Where's the wisdom in this? And when we start asking questions like that, it leads us to a place where maybe the conclusion becomes, well, I don't believe that a God would do that, so he must not exist. And if he does exist, I don't know that I really agree with his methods because this feels unfair. This feels unjust. And so we end up arriving at a place that we've talked about before where we question God's existence and we question his character. But let's dive into that for a moment, if we can. Let's dive into that way of thinking. The fact that we can look upon these darker seasons of life and have something within us that renders it unfair or tragic shows us that you and I have an innate ability to discern between that which is good and that which is wrong, that which is right and that which is evil. We have that inherent capacity within us, this, this moral compass to distinguish between the two and to desire that which is good. Isn't it remarkable that across the globe, all of humanity, regardless of country, nation, ethnicity, worldview, is able to look on this pandemic and say, that's tragic. We should aspire for what is good. And they're doing everything they can to work towards that. Where does that come from? That ability for us to discern between the two, where does it come from? Well, we've got a couple of choices. One choice would be to say that it has evolved within us, right? It's an instinctive human nature. It's just something that we have developed over time to have this moral compass and to choose what is right and wrong. If that's an option that we choose, the problem with that is that how does it 
work itself out when those nuances of determining what's right and wrong, good and evil, a blessing or a tragedy, how do we get to make those decisions? Who has the wisdom to look beyond just you know, a, a broad scope of a pandemic, but all the nuances of everyday life, every situation, and make a determination of whether it's good or bad? Who has that sort of wisdom? And how many examples do we have throughout the course of human history that humanity has tried to claim that power and claim that wisdom to the detriment of others? Right, that, that what one person deems is right and good is going to jeopardize what somebody else deems is right and, and good, and it creates this conflict. And so we have the choice to say, well, yeah, that, that, that ability to, dis, to determine between good and evil, right and wrong, moral and everything, that, that's our own ability, and so we can have that wisdom, but it creates tremendous conflict. The other option is to stop and acknowledge the fact that everyone has that sense of moral compass within us, this, this desire to that which is good, this desire to that which is hopeful is bestowed upon us by a creator, a creator who wants us to desire those good things and to move towards those good things. And he alone has the wisdom to make the ultimate determination of what is right, what is wrong, what is good, and what is evil. And he actually uses these moments of darker colors to lead us into a greater appreciation of that which shines more brightly. And that's the choice that I believe we find here in Ephesians chapter three. The manifold wisdom of God teaches us that sometimes we're gonna be exposed to those darker colors, but they will lead us into a greater appreciation for what God has done. So then, if that's true, how do we respond? Right? If that's true, and there's actually meaning behind those darker moments, there's meaning behind these darker colors that come in, how are we to respond to it? Well, think about what we see in other areas of the scripture, like in the book of James, where James says, count it pure joy when you encounter trials of many kind, because those trials will produce perseverance. Or as Paul says in the book of Romans, that you can glory in your suffering because that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character hope, and God's hope will never put us to shame because he has poured out his love into our hearts. Think about all the ways that we are encouraged to embrace these darker moments and these darker colors that come into our lives. One of my favorite passages that depicts this comes from 2 Corinthians chapter four. I'm gonna read just a couple of sections of it for us this morning because ultimately what Paul is saying is that the fact that we have this wisdom of God, we have this hope of the gospel, it is like a treasure that we should hold so dear. Verse seven, he says, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side but not crushed, perplexed but not in despair, persecuted but not abandoned, struck down but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may also be revealed in our mortal body. So then death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. And then skipping down to verse 16. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light 
and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. That's what is taking place when we enter into these darker moments. That's the wisdom of God. We can stop and question it and wonder what's the point, what is it doing. In reality, when we understand the wisdom of God and we understand how it's leading us into those brighter colors and the need for those brighter colors, we can see that it's actually producing a work in us and achieving in us a glory that far outweighs our light and momentary troubles in this life. And that is remarkable because what that means, church, is every moment of your life that feels overwhelming, that feels difficult, that feels unfair, is meaningful. It's significant. It's purposeful. It is achieving something in you. That's the wisdom of God. That is the manifold wisdom of God. And that's what Paul points to here. If you think about his digression, I'll I'll close with his example. The thing that that prompts this digression in verse 1 is this fact that he refers to himself as a prisoner for the Gentiles. And so at the very end of this passage, he says, therefore, don't be discouraged by my suffering for you. So what led him into this whole digression was his current situation, his current suffering. And yet as we read Paul, we don't find him going, God, this isn't fair. Why did you put me in this situation? I don't understand this. No, what he sees is that there is wisdom behind it. And the wisdom is actually accomplishing something as it's leading others into glory. Paul is willing to take on his own personal suffering for the glory of others. What an example he has set. And it should come as no surprise because it's the example he is following in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's the example we see in Holy Week. That's where we find the wisdom behind this triumphal entry. Right? That God has chosen this lowly Savior who was born in a manger, this humble carpenter, to come riding in on a donkey to lead into a week of suffering. A week that will be filled with darker colors of betrayal, of persecution, of beating, and ultimately death. And just as his followers begin to despair and lose hope and begin to wonder where is the wisdom in any of this, God shows them that he painted with those darker colors of suffering so that the bright color of the resurrection would shine all the more radiantly. (laughs) And so that's what you and I have the opportunity to do as well, to follow this example of this Savior, to not be fearful of those darker colors in our lives and in our existence, but to once again behold the wonderful mystery that is Jesus Christ, who reveals that in our suffering, the radiance of God's hope and his promise and his deliverance and his love shine all the more brightly. We find that through this wonderful mystery, the manifold wisdom of God actually leads us through suffering, and into glory. May that be the hope that we cling to this week. Let's pray.
Father in heaven, we love you. And we acknowledge that there are so many times in life where it is difficult to make sense of these darker colors. And yet we cling to this truth today to be reminded of the fact that even in those moments of darkness, in those moments of hardship and trial and difficulty, God leads us into a greater love and appreciation for what it is that you have redeemed and restored and reconciled. And so on this holy week, may we venture with you through this this road into Jerusalem, into this call towards suffering, knowing, God, that it is achieving something within us that far outweighs these momentary troubles that we may face. No matter what situation we may face in this world, God, we know it pales in comparison to the glory that will be revealed in us by following Jesus, our Savior. So, Father, let us cling tightly to this hope. Let us behold this wonderful mystery, this wisdom of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Savior. It's in his name we pray. Amen and amen.